Alrighty, and we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you for joining me on this here episode. This is episode 11, uh, and it's a really, really good one. And it's kind of an accidental one, and I'll talk about why that is here very soon. But um, again, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, you can be listening to any one of 500,000 other podcasts in the country, in the world right now, including many other Notre Dame football podcasts or Notre Dame general Notre Dame podcasts. So I am super happy and, and again, extremely grateful uh, that you have elected to join me here today. So... Uh, you can hear this show on Apple Podcasts, so if you have an iPhone, just click that purple icon, click the subscribe button, you'll be notified instantly if any new shows, uh, when new shows are released, and the same can be said for Spotify, if that's your preferred method of listening to podcasts. All of the episodes are hosted also through Podbean, and you can visit onwardtovictory.podbean.com and listen to all the episodes there as well. The website, actually, the Podbean website, just got a bit of a facelift here thanks to the generosity of some consensus All-Americans, whom I'll talk about in just a second. But please visit the website. Again, however it is that you listen to podcasts, make sure that you subscribe, because then you're going to be notified instantly of any new episodes as they are released and recorded. So... Uh, if you'd like to visit Headquarters HQ, that's facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. It's through the Facebook page that I generally will release you know, news, insight, analysis. Sometimes I'll do some video uh, as well as contests, giveaways, and again, whenever new episodes are released, you'll be notified. So give the Facebook page a like and a follow. Uh, and you won't regret it, surely. So, the Consensus All-Americans, whom I was just talking about, is the group of people who actually donate monetarily to the show, and who are, who have donated monetarily to the show, and they kind of keep, as I like to say, the proverbial lights on. My goal for the show is to always try to keep it ad-free. I feel like a show like this, which is, if you're a, a veteran to the show, then you know that this is much more story-based, um, I feel like ads would really kind of be a detriment to the program and kind of the flow of a lot of the stories. And so my goal is to always keep it ad-free, but this is a podcast that does cost money to put on. So that being said, if you'd like to donate monetarily to the show and become a Consensus All-American, and I will, whenever someone becomes a Consensus All-American, I make sure that I make make sure that everyone knows the, that that's the case. But if you'd like to go to paypal.me slash Onward to Victory, you can give a one-time donation or you can go to patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast. And that's, Patreon's actually a site where you can uh, elect to give uh, a, a monthly amount each month uh, for, you know, whether it be a few dollars or whatever have you. But please just know that any amount is so greatly appreciated. It all 100% goes back into the show, and I've been able to do some really neat things with uh, the the Consensus All American funds thus far. And so, uh, hopefully, that program continues to grow. And for our Consensus All Americans, I will be notifying you here all very soon because um, the ones who have donated, uh, Will from New Orleans, Louisiana, 
Adam from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Colton from Cleveland, Ohio. You all will be receiving a signed, an autographed, an autographed Onward to Victory postcard signed by Hunter Smith, who punted for Notre Dame back in the 90s. So, it, you know, I'm always going to be doing giveaways, and so, uh, but for now, if you become a Consensus All-American, I still have a couple more of these postcards left, so act now. As always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as our theme song. Thank you for exclusive access uh, to the song for usage. Uh, if you are a veteran, then if you hear that song, you know that a new episode of Onward to Victory is coming. But if you're new and that's a bit of a toe tapper for you, or if you're a veteran and you're not quite 100% sure where to find it, you can go to YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or iTunes. Again, Joseph Rakish, Knut Rockney, he's got a lot of other songs that are a good bit of fun as well. So please feel free to make sure you support him and uh, give the song a few listens. Now, I really hope that everyone had an opportunity to listen to episode 10, which was our true crime episode about the mysterious side of the death of Coach Canute Rockney. That was a, a lot of fun to put together, I'm not going to lie, and I've been getting pretty cool feedback from all of you. So uh, please, let me know what you think about the episode. I I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any strong feelings about episode 10, the the true crime Knut Rockney episode. And I'm really happy to to say that I've kind of gotten in touch with a, a gentleman named Jeff Harrell, who you might, that name might ring a bell because he wrote an article that was actually featured in the Notre Dame Alumni Magazine in the spring of 2019 about the mob bomb theory. But he's currently putting the finishing touches on uh, a book he's calling The Rockney of Ages about the, about the theory. And... Seems like a really interesting guy with a super interesting background, but again, Jeff Harrell. So hopefully, here in the next few months, I'm gonna have him on the on the program and to talk about the book. But just be on the lookout for it, Jeff Harrell, Rockney of Ages. And as I mentioned, I've made contact with him, and hopefully, we'll have an episode here where uh, he joins me and we kind of talk together uh, about the theory. And he's something of an expert. He's, I, I would I would imagine that he knows more about that than anyone walking planet Earth. So he'll be a really cool person to talk to. So just be on the lookout for that in a future episode. So here we are, episode 11. This is we are dubbing this one the Alohi Gilman episode. Because yesterday, Notre Dame really put a drubbing on the U.S. Naval Academy. It was really amazing to see. But, of course, our current safety, Alohi Gilman, is a transfer from the U.S. Navy Academy. Uh, Naval Academy, pardon me. And he wears number 11. So, part of our tradition around here is we assign each episode a player who played for Notre Dame who wore that episode's number. So, number 11, let's just roll with Alohi Gilman. Um, because again, if uh, it feels right, and truthfully, if you're a follower of the current edition of the Irish, he's probably one of your favorite players because he's just really fun to watch. You can tell that he's a really good leader, and hopefully, he ends up making a little bit of money playing football on Sundays because I think he actually has the talent to be maybe maybe a semi-decent, pretty good safety at the NFL level. So we'll see. He'll be a, definitely a guy that I follow should he get to that level. But this is episode 11, and so I've been asked a couple times about the process of which, what it takes to get an episode, you know, to you all. I've been asked by a couple people, so maybe this would be a really ni nice time to talk about that, because this is one time where I was 
really headlong into my process and I ended up changing episode ideas mid-swing. So this is effectively a one-man office here. Uh, I do all of the reading and the writing and the researching, the recording and the editing, the promoting, all of that good stuff for the channel. And you've probably picked up on that. But uh, what I normally do is, is I'll kind of figure out an idea to run with. And for every idea for a show that you might have listened to to this point, there's at least one or two ideas that I've discarded because having an idea that you could use for a show, uh, they kind of separate themselves out because it has to be an idea that you can hopefully intelligently um, and hopefully eloquently talk about for about 40 minutes for, for each episode. And I like the episodes to be ed educational, of course, entertaining, but uh, have like an intellectual bend to them as well, where you know you can kind of jump in and do a good amount of research. I do a lot of research in the primary uh, sources, like such as the Notre Dame archives, which are wonderful. If you're ever looking to poke around and find some cool stuff, the Notre Dame archives online are really awesome. And a lot of the stuff is free. But anywho, so I'll... Like, so I won't work too terribly far in advance as a result. It's just me. So I will, like I said, I'll get an idea going. And after it's kind of passed the, the smell test or the litmus test that I'm like, okay, I can actually make a full episode out of this. I'll just jump head first. Got a lot of Notre Dame books at home here. So I'm able to do a lot of research at home. But as I mentioned in the archives and, and all of that. So uh, I do a good, I pretty much will write. You can tell once these kind of stories begin, I write most of it out. I'll generally have bullet lists as well if I want to in include things into the presentation, but a lot of it is written out. I've taken the time to kind of type it out just to make sure that it's if it's in story format that it actually is something you can sit and listen to and it hopefully flows together really nicely. But this episode was actually supposed to be about Cartier Field. Now, if you're otherwise unaware, Cartier Field was Notre Dame's first home football field. So, you know, for instance, like George Gipp, played his whole career at Cartier Field. You know, the Four Horsemen played their games at Cartier Field. Coach Knut Rockney did, you know, 90% of his coaching, 90-plus uh, percent of his coaching at Cartier Field because Notre Dame Stadium wasn't built until 1930. So I was actually doing, like, hopefully a really... And by the way, this episode will come to fruition at some point, but I was doing, like, a good amount of research about Cartier Field, you know, how it was built, you know, the shape, you know, doing all those kind of quirky things, you know, to kind of really paint the picture and, and, and enliven what's a field, a field that hasn't been used in nearly a hundred years. But then I kind of was reading up on the transition the football team had from using Cartier Field to Notre Dame Stadium. And then my mind started wondering, and I was like, you know, who is it that you know, I kind of started thinking, I wonder who was the first Irish player to score the first touchdown at Notre Dame Stadium. And, you know, because you think about Notre Dame Stadium and all the great players who have played there since its opening during that 1933, or excuse me, 1930 season. So, you know, Johnny Lujak, you know, Paul Hornig, uh, Angelo Bertelli, Joe Montana, Tim Brown, Tamanti Teo, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But the question that I began to ponder again was who scored the first Irish touchdown at Notre Dame Stadium? So after 450 football games, where did it start? Where did the scoring start? I'll ask you, did, do you know who scored? If you did, please let me know because I'll be very, very impressed with you. Um, but all I knew was is that suddenly I had to know who it was. So I did a little digging. Actually, it was not difficult to find. But the date was October 4th, 1930. The date will live forever as the day the, of the first Notre Dame home game at Notre Dame Stadium. 
And I'm sure Coach Rockney was strutting the sidelines, flushed with pride over his 60,000-seat, $750,000 jewel, which, just in case you were otherwise unaware, he actually helped personally design the stadium. And he used the same company that designed Yankee Stadium. So the Irish were playing host to Southern Methodist University that day, who at the time had won three straight Southwestern Conference titles, and the Mustangs looked every bit the part of, of the champions. And so they actually scored the first touchdown in Notre Dame Stadium history, and they took a 7-0 lead in that opening game of 1930. But my question was, who's, who was the first Notre Dame player to score a touchdown in that stadium? So the ensuing kickoff, right after the Mustangs scored, uh, the ensuing kickoff was caught by senior fullback Joe Savoldi and ran 98 yards for a touchdown. So all, Notre Dame, just, just to kind of put a bow on it, Notre Dame would ultimately win that game 20-14, to and Savoldi was just merely the answer to our trivia question, right? Well, no, not exactly. Savoldi, who was known then as Jumping Joe, is just a bit more than that. In fact, he is much much more than that. And even a cursory glance at his biography tells you that. Even after 90 seconds of looking at it, I decided that while I love you, Cartier Field, and there will be a future episode about it, this one, this one belongs to Jumping Joe Savoldi, who, oh boy, I think led one of the most interesting and varied lives that, that I have ever read about. And truthfully, again, maybe maybe I was just a little bit shocked by the fact that I was not looking to find out about any of this. I was just looking up Cartier Field and then Notre Dame Stadium, and then my natural curiosity kind of kicked in about who scored the first Irish touchdown there, and this is what I found. But quite something. It's jarring almost. And so... Anyways, so if you think I'm being dramatic or just being overly hyperbolic, just wait and see. Just wait and see. You're going to love this. So for lack of a proper title or one that really captures the essence of this man, I just called this one Beyond Belief, the utterly astonishing life experience of Jumping Joe Savoldi, which will begin right after this. The story begins in Castano Primo, a village in Milan, Italy, where young Giuseppe Savoldi was born on March 5, 1908. Though you'd be hard-pressed to guess this later in life, he actually entered the world a full two months premature. His mother and father emigrated to the United States shortly after he was born, and Giuseppe was raised in Italy by his grandmother and his aunt. Life was difficult for the youngster as he found himself working at a very young age toting crates of ammunition for the Italian army during World War I to help supplement the family's income. Though the work was physically demanding and incredibly mundane, he found himself growing muscular and sinewy during his preteen years. This will become something of a theme, so spoiler alert. When he was 12, the year was 1920, and he joined his mother and his father in the United States. The family had settled in Three Oaks, Michigan, a small southwestern town of about 1,300 people then. It's roughly the same size today. Shortly after arriving, Giuseppe anglicized his name, becoming Joe. 
He continued building his tough exterior by helping his uncle construct churches and other buildings in Three Oaks, carrying bricks up the ladder to assist in the projects. In high school, Joe was a standout athlete, excelling in football, basketball, and track and field. Upon his graduation from high school in 1927, Joe was selected to give a speech at the commencement exercises, which he used as a platform to deliver a scathing one towards his native Italy. When it came to playing football, Joe was a bruiser of a ball carrier, throwing all of his 5 foot 11 inch and nearly 200 pound body at any would-be tacklers. Now this is an era in which the average halfback or fullback was probably in the neighborhood of between 150 and 175 pounds. So this was bound to catch the eye of some rather prominent football people, including Notre Dame head coach Knut Rockney. Rockney quickly scooped up Savoldi before the University of Michigan did. Truthfully though, Notre Dame wasn't much of a stretch for the Savaldis. For South Bend was only 25 miles or so from Three Oaks, and the institution's Catholic background resonated with the family, who also practiced Catholicism. According to one of my favorite sources for the podcast, the Notre Dame Football Review, found in the university's archives, Joe would have sat out his entire freshman season, which was the law of the land at the time, and didn't play too much his sophomore campaign in 1928, though he did start one game against Georgia Tech. It was in 1929, his junior year, that Savoldi would break out, scoring six touchdowns, including the only one in a 7-0 victory over Carnegie Tech, now known as Carnegie Mellon. Perhaps his most famous score, Savoldi, on fourth and goal, threw himself airborne over the offensive line, landing in the end zone for six. It was after the game that he earned the nickname Jumping Joe for the plunge, which, as the official football review points out, is, quote, likely to stick with him for the rest of his life, end quote. He was named an All-American for the undefeated national champion Irish for his efforts. The 1930 football review going into his senior year had a wonderful encapsulation of his Notre Dame career. Here's an excerpt. His name is Joe Savoldi, and he came to Notre Dame from Three Oaks, Michigan, unknown and unheralded. He was born in a small town near Milan, Italy, and came to America at the age of 13. He had played the games the Italian children had played when he was in grade school, but football was all new to him. At Three Oaks High School, he went out with the rest of the boys and played, untutored but willing, and developed into a smashing, devastating fullback. When he came to Notre Dame in 1927, freshman coaches were amazed at his splendid physique, some 200 pounds of muscle, and his great speed. His lack of high school coaching was, however, no small obstacle to him. His natural ability was recognized, but when he went out for varsity ball his second year, he was relegated to the reserves. To learn the intricacies of the complicated Rockney offense and the maze of assignments to be remembered on defense against some of the best teams in the nation in one season was more than could be expected of any man. In 1929, though, Joe came into his own with his bruising rushes through the line and his brilliant open field running." End quote. Regarding more on his person, Irish assistant head coach Jack Shavigny once said, quote, 
I don't believe the boy was ever angry at anyone. If once we can get him thoroughly mad in a football game, heaven help the other fellows, end quote. His senior season, 1930, began with a bang. As he returned the aforementioned first kickoff return for the first touchdown in the brand new Notre Dame Stadium's young history. He scored three touchdowns the following week in a 26-2 route of the Naval Academy. Two weeks after that, he intercepted a pass on defense and scored a touchdown against Pitt. By the time the Irish were slated to play the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, the sixth game of the season, Savaldi had 356 rushing yards and seven touchdowns. He would run his total to eight touchdowns in six games after a 60-20 pasting of the Quakers. But controversy was brewing. In the locker room after the game, one of the local reporters asked him a two-part question. Had he ever been married, and had he ever been divorced? Though it was only known among his closest friends, Savaldi was in fact married to a local South Bend girl. It's possible that Joe's family was even unaware. The couple didn't cohabitate as Joe lived in the residence halls on campus, and the young woman lived at home with her parents. However, the day that Notre Dame left for the Penn game, a local judge had processed a divorce request that bore Savaldi's signature. And the story blew up pretty quickly. One might even call it a scandal. When he returned to South Bend after the game, nearly 200 reporters were lined up awaiting his arrival. Savaldi's roommate and quarterback on the team, Frank Caradeo, did his best to deflect the questions Savaldi could only claim that he was never married. As writer Mike Sielski penned, quote, His denial didn't satisfy university officials. As a Catholic institution, Notre Dame did not condone or abide either interfaith marriage or divorce, and Savaldi, according to a university disciplinary report, had engaged in both, resulting in public discredit to the school. At another university... In another football program, Savaldi's personal affairs might not have been noteworthy. At Notre Dame, they ignited a crisis, end quote. Among the public relations and media storm, Joe Savaldi withdrew from Notre Dame on November 17, 1930. He actually quickly signed with George Hallis and the Chicago Bears of the National Football League, making his NFL debut only 10 days, I repeat, 10 days after withdrawing from Notre Dame, scoring the only touchdown in a Bears 6-0 victory over the Chicago Cardinals. So that was pretty quick. Went from college star to NFL star-ish within a week and a half. But hoping to strike while the iron was hot on Savaldi, Hallis made sure he was handsomely compensated for what was three games of work that season for the Bears, to the tune of $12,000, the second highest salary in the entire league behind Red Grange. Since most of the players made less than $100 a week, they really came to despise their new teammate pretty quickly. Jumping Joe would actually never play pro football again, and an old rule 
was soon more strictly reinforced about players being required to graduate from college before joining the pro ranks. But Savaldi was now famous. He actually screen-tested for the role of Tarzan for a Hollywood picture that winter, 1930. And after briefly rejoining Notre Dame in an off-the-books exhibition game in December of 1930, he caught the eye of professional wrestling promoter Ed Lewis, known professionally as the Strangler. He approached him about a deal, which was struck in May of 1931. As writer Sielski wrote, Quote, the opportunity was tailor-made for Savaldi. He had wrestled and boxed to stay in shape at Notre Dame, and having swelled to 220 pounds, his neck now an 18-and-a-half-inch tree trunk, he had fortified himself against the violence of his new profession. Pro wrestlers faced off in plywood-covered boxing rings that lacked the relative cushion and recoil of springs and canvas mats. As combatants head-slapped, head-locked, head-butted, head-scissored, arm-locked, arm-chopped, arm-wrenched, back-flipped, body-pressed, grabbed, kneed, tackled, and clotheslined each other, the arenas heated themselves into stews of flying teeth, fine sprays of fresh blood, and clouds of cigarette smoke. The sporting press covered matches as if they were on the level. Sometimes they were, end quote. So needless to say, given this description of professional wrestling in the 1930s, it was a little bit different then than perhaps it is here now in the 21st century. But Savaldi was an instant sensation in the wrestling circle, and a busy one, competing in upwards of 100 matches in that first year. Now, head over to YouTube if you get a chance, because there are actually some highlights of Jumping Joe in the ring. They are quite something. It is in one of these videos that you'll see the patented Savaldi move, the drop kick. Now, if you're a wrestling aficionado or even a wrestling novice, of which I am not, I will be 100% honest, but it is Savaldi who actually was the first wrestler to perform the drop kick. And if you're trying to picture the move, think of a kick you'd typically see out of a kangaroo when he was up on his hind legs. Needless to say, it takes a quite a bit of strength to effectively pull one of these off. So again, it kind of looks like the wrestler standing jumps up and throws his feet forward to generally kick the opposing wrestler in the chest area. Quite remarkable, but Savaldi was the first to do it. So the now iconic Savaldi was among the first celebrities to utilize the original Muscle Beach in Santa Monica. In 1933, he fought in the heavyweight wrestling title and actually won the match before the hold he was alleged to have used to win was deemed illegal. So just as a quick status check, in three short years, Joseph Aldi has gone from All-American Notre Dame fullback to professional fullback on George Hallis' Chicago Bears to now a wrestling sensation. But don't worry, don't worry folks, there is more. But in the late 1930s, he had effectively retired from professional wrestling and having earned enough from gate receipts and payouts to travel the globe for a couple years with his family. When he returned to the States in the early 1940s, he actually did return to wrestling, albeit in smaller arenas and smaller towns with smaller payouts. But... 
He also developed an energy drink, which, according to his grandson, he did because, quote, he thought Coca-Cola was too sweet, and he wanted to invent a low-sugar drink with an energy-boosting component to it, end quote. Naturally, he called the energy drink Dropkick, with the tagline, a drink for all Americans. Pretty delicious double entendre of sorts, but his biggest client... Notre Dame, as they actually had agreed to sell it at the football games in Notre Dame Stadium, where, just to be quickly reminded, he had scored the first Irish touchdown in stadium history. But the fates had other things in store for Jumping Joe. So the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the United States vaulted headfirst into the conflict known as World War II. So unfortunately, shortly after the United States entry into the war, rations were introduced to the American people, including one on sugar. So the amount of sugar that was allocated to Joe's energy drink company was not nearly enough to sustain the orders, and the company bottomed out. And Joe lost what was left of his wealth. The financially strapped Savaldi would, according to his grandson, wrestled in 280 matches in 1942 to help offset his financial losses from the failed energy drink company. 280 wrestling matches. Again, go back to YouTube and see just how physically demanding these were. And this is very nearly one a day. So with the entire world engaged with the global conflict, it's possible that from a bird's eye view, that you'd believe the 34-year-old Savoldi had aged out of active service. You would be profoundly incorrect. At some point, Savoldi was identified by the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, as a possible agent. So the OSS would be dedicated to coordinating espionage activities behind enemy lines on behalf of the United States military. I am not kidding you. One of the more famous sportsmen in America was selected to be a spy. And not just any spy, but one of the first 400 men selected for duty by the OSS. So as writer Sielski so eloquently writes, quote, William Wild Bill Donovan, its director, mined college campuses and cocktail parties for recruits. Bankers, truckers, professors, actors, captains of industry, few of them with military experience, all of them with just enough of the devil in them to make them valuable in war. The price of capture could be torture in a prisoner of war camp or death by firing squad. An OSS recruit had to be robust, resourceful, and motivated. End quote. But Sielski continues, So a professional wrestler and football player who as a teenager had called out fascism in his native country? Savaldi's profile hit the agency's sweet spot. Colonel Carol T. Harris of the OSS interviewed him in 1942 and found him as a, quote, a person who is not only extremely intelligent, but superbly qualified because of his excellent physical condition. He is also shrewd in the tricks of personal combat, 
End quote. Shrewd in the tricks of personal combat. I guess that's one way of saying it. But Savaldi, being fluent in Italian and being able to utilize multiple dialects, became an instant asset. He was deployed in the field in 1943 and was given the uber-appropriate call sign of Samson, the biblical figure of massive strength, befitting of his biblical size, toughness, and tenacity. And again, I just want to say that when I was doing this research and going through the uh, his biography, this is not the left turn that I really thought that this thing was going to go. So hopefully you're kind of experiencing it too. So um, one of his early noteworthy missions was called the McGregor Project, where Joe adopted the alias of Giuseppe DeLeo, an Italian army captain, where he performed high visibility reconnaissance, naturally at a great danger to himself. And in layman's terms, high visibility meant that he was out in the open wearing a disguise. But the end result of the mission was the surrender of the entire Italian naval fleet in September of 1943. But he didn't stop there. Now that the Italians were out of the game, so to speak, the OSS turns attention towards crippling the other Axis powers. Of the bad guys' most significant weapons that was in development was the SIC torpedo. Now, this munition could detonate by just passing under a submarine, relying on a state-of-the-art electromagnetic configuration. So even a missed missile could actually hit its target by just merely brushing past the submarine. But the OSS task was to spring 42-year-old scientist Carlo Colosi, who was designing the weapon, from Nazi-held Rome. After a three-month manhunt, all in enemy territory, all behind enemy lines, Savaldi and his small team finally found Colosi in January of 1944 and brought him safely back to the United States. Take a breath, because he didn't stop there either for the rest of 1944. He went undercover in Naples and busted up many of the Italian mafias controlled black markets. You know, just for good measure. But jumping Joe Savaldi, after more than two years in the secret service of his country, was discharged on December 22, 1944. A couple weeks later, he was interviewed by the United Press International, and he was asked if he had been discharged from the Army. Quote, I wasn't in the Army, Savaldi said. He was then prompted about which branch he served with. He responded by, quote, saying, Let's say I wasn't in anything. Let's just say I was working for the government on a special assignment. End quote. A special assignment. Well, I suppose that's one way to put it. By the early 1950s, Jumping Joe's wrestling days were over, but he did manage and train wrestler Houston Harris, also known as Bobo Brazil, who would become the first black heavyweight champion in the wrestling world. He ultimately settled down in Henderson, Kentucky, just south of Evansville, Indiana. Though he appeared to have lived a very quiet and serene life, never speaking about the horrors of war, he confessed only to his personal diary 
that he took sleep medication almost every night because his nightmares of the war were so vivid. In 1963, he was hired by Henderson County High School as a science teacher before he succumbed to a heart attack on January 25, 1974. Jumping Joe Savaldi was 65 years old. So yes, this sojourn began with my curiosity, wanting to answer a fairly basic inquiry. We all know that now, yes, it was Jumping Joe Savaldi who scored the first ever Irish touchdown in Notre Dame Stadium on that chilly October day back in 1930. But who would ever guessed that that same man, who was a poor Italian immigrant, turned All-American fullback, turned Notre Dame expellee, turned Chicago Bear, turned prolific professional wrestler, turned burgeoning energy drink magnet, turned allied spy, turned war hero, responsible for helping cripple one of the gravest evils humankind has ever seen, turned science teacher. One who simply put his best foot forward his entire life, despite what some described as crippling physical, emotional, or mental pain. That, my friends, is Joe Savaldi. Remember the name, and we will be right back. All right, well, did you enjoy that? I really hope you did. It was a blast to put together and research and write. And I still, throughout all those crazy turns in that story, I kept having to just remind myself, I'm like, I am a really, really big Notre Dame fan. And if you listen to the show, then you know that I really enjoy Notre Dame history, and I really like talking about it and sharing it. But I had never once heard of this guy. And I'm not too proud to admit that. But... I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I, my curiosity took me down a road that was generally helpful. And hopefully, again, it turned into some entertainment for, for you. But that's Jumpin' Joe Savaldi. And my goodness, I hate to say it, but he just vaulted right up, right up my list of favorite Notre Dame football players of all time. And um, if you'd like to read a little bit more about him, I want to make sure I cite my sources. A lot of the information that I pulled came from the Notre Dame Football Review, which was published annually every single year. And that's all available on the Notre Dame online archives. But I actually referenced it a couple times in the presentation there. But there was an article called Star in the Shadows. And it was written by Mike Sielski. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. But it was excuse me, published through the Philadelphia Inquirer. So if you're interested, if you, I'm sure you could probably just jump into Google and search, uh, and search Joe Savaldi Philadelphia Inquirer or whatever have you, it's going to come up. But seriously, look at, uh, if, you, if you get time and if your curiosity happens to continue to be peaked, just go to Google and, and YouTube. And first of all, the, I'm serious, the wrestling clips were just 
unbelievable to watch. Like, I feel like my jaw was hitting the floor. I'm not much of a wrestling person. I didn't wrestle in high school, and I never followed wrestling as a sport. But this was like, this was a very physical brand of wrestling. And watching Jumping Joe in action was just, I was, I was awestruck. But online, you can also see pictures of him at Muscle Beach. He was one of those first few guys at Muscle Beach. You can see him in his Irish uniform. You can see the actual, uh, his credentials he used when he was Giuseppe DeLeo who was the, uh, the Italian army captain, so that was one of his deep covers. You can see all that stuff. It's remarkable. It is remarkable. And from what I was able to gather, his grandson, who I also referenced in the, um, in the presentation, is extremely passionate about his grandfather, and it's amazing. He's maybe, I hope, I only hope that he finds this podcast episode somehow and we could interact. Uh, he's pretty convinced that uh, his his grandfather should is movie worthy, and my goodness, do I agree! What an amazing story about a really, really cool person. And again, all started didn't all start, but again, just as the first person, the first Irish player to score a touchdown in Notre Dame Stadium. So if you like that and you want to hear more of that, jump over to uh, Apple Podcasts, the purple icon, Spotify. There's tons of episodes that are kind of like this, uh, mostly story-based episodes. So what's coming down the pike in the future here? Well, the football season's coming to an end. The Notre Dame, again, after beating the current edition of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, after beating the Naval Academy over the weekend pretty handily, have run their record to 8-2. and two. So we will be going to a bowl. Now we'll see how we close out against Boston College and then Stanford, and then we'll be talking about what bowl game we're going to. So I think... What I'm going to be doing next is I'm probably going to shelve a story episode for a little while because uh, I know there's a lot of people who want to hear some about the my opinions and, and insight about the current edition of the Irish. So I'll probably do a bowl game preview and or a season recap episode next here in a couple weeks once the games are announced. And then after that, uh, we'll kind of wait and see. Might do another listener poll here and see which uh, direction we go for the next story episode. But please, go back and listen to some of the old episodes. They are timeless. And I, they are designed very specifically to be timeless. And I know I talk a little bit about the, the current edition of the Irish in each of them. But the main, the meat of the episodes is meant to be something that you can listen to at any time. But please subscribe. Please like the Facebook page. Again, it is facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. If you want to join the Consensus All-American crew, it is paypal.me slash Onward to Victory or patreon.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. If you want to support the, the, the show from a monetary standpoint, visit one of those two. Send the show an email at Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, inquiries, or feedback. But please interact with the show however you see fit. And I hope you enjoyed that. I really do. I'm still kind of riding a bit of a, <laughs> uh, sounds hokey, but I'm still riding a bit of a natural adrenaline rush just from reading that because that was just fantastic to, to kind of learn about. But anyways, well, I guess that one brings brings episode 11, the Alohi Gilman, the Jumping Joe Savoldi episode to a close. So this has been Onward to Victory, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Hope you enjoyed that. And as always, go Irish.